Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. Here is your forecast for Friday, July 28th and Saturday, July 29th. So Friday, mostly in the clear under partly sunny skies, slight chance of rain showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon with a high in the lower 60s. Wind northwest shifting west at 30 to 45 miles per hour early. 20 to 35 miles per hour midday and 30 to 45 miles per hour late. Friday night, mostly in the clear, becoming mostly in the clouds under mostly cloudy skies. That's a lot of mostlies. Uh, chance of rain showers. Lower 50s, west at 30 to 45 miles per hour with gusts up to 55 miles per hour. And Saturday, Emily's hike day. In the clouds with a chance of rain, showers, and scattered afternoon thunderstorms. Some thunderstorms may become severe, producing heavy rainfall, small hail, and strong winds. With a high in the upper 50s, wind west, possibly southwest at times, in the afternoon at 30 to 45 miles per hour. Higher winds possible with thunderstorm activity. So um, be safe out there for Emily's hike, everybody, and uh, be sure to check the weather out. Again, before you head out. Okay, bye.
Yeah, I'm getting low. But two of them are like these like sour drinks that my daughter's boyfriend likes, I guess. So I really have two that I would touch. Okay. So I got to get new. I got to get some new beer. Nice. I was looking up some uh, ideas for 115 because last week it was, you know, Route 114. And I couldn't think of anything. So I went to Google. And uh, 115 represents the 14th soundtrack. I think it's a, th- a song in the Call of Duty Black Ops Zombies soundtrack. So there you go. <laughs> Some okay. random that's a sh- that, that, fact. That's a little nichey, but okay. It sure is. <laughs> that's the first thing that came up. All right. Well, um, <laughs> welcome to episode 115 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are breaking out our running gear because we're joined by two of the region's most passionate supporters of the mountain running community, Tom Raffio, CEO of Northeast Delta Dental, and Christina Folsick of the White Mountain Endurance um, Racing and Coaching. So Christina is a previous guest on the podcast and has been busy coaching and organizing a race schedule, including the upcoming Jigger Johnson and Kilkenny Ridge races. So we'll catch up with her for the latest updates on all things White Mountain Endurance, as well as uh, learn about their exciting new collaboration with Arapia Running Stomp. You're going to have to help me with that pronunciation. Is that Ara right? Viper. Or Ara, Ara, Ara Viper. Viper. One or the other. Yeah. yeah. We probably should, we should probably work out the pronunciation <laughs> for the show and not during Dude, the show, but okay. Yeah. Well, just trying to be consistent in our patheticness. Yeah pronunciation. Yeah, my, my pronunciation is <laughs> not good. So in addition to that, we are excited to speak with Tom uh, Raffio. So anyone involved in the Northern New England running scene will see Northeast Delta Dental sponsoring large races and small races around the area, including the Mount Washington Road Race, the infamous Loon Mountain Race, Race the Cog, and many other USA track and field New England races throughout the Northern New England region. So whenever Delta Dental supports a race, uh, Tom Tom is typically um, sure to be nearby as a package deal as a as a runner. So Tom and his wife Ellen, along with their friend Erica Allen Allison uh, Cohen, recently published a new book called Stories from the Starting Line, which is a collection of stories by and about runners of all ages. So profits from this book go to the Northeast Delta Dental Oral Health Foundation to improve access to dental care and also the Tom Walton Scholarship Fund. So we'll hear from Tom about the book. We'll talk about how he's built the corporate culture of wellness and learn about how he stays focused on his fitness while living an extremely busy life. So tonight, I'm happy to get Tom and Christina here to talk about their mutual passion for health, wellness, and access to dental care, as well as their recent collaborative efforts. So all this, plus a review of the Presidential Traverse, Horses Rescued on Mount Shakora, more animals needing rescue that we'll cover. Stomp floats the Pemi, and we've got a history segment about Ruggles Mind Mine in Grafton, New Hampshire. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Stomp, I want overtime pay for that intro. That was like <laughs> something else. Yeah. When you ask me to try a draft of it, that's what you get. <laughs> I know, I know. So Stomp wrote that one. Usually I write them. So good job, Stomp. Thanks. Very concise. Little, you're right. No, right. I didn't make it very concise. <laughs> A lot of information uh, in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. So let's start the show off with animals here. We got all kinds of nonsense going on with animals. So um, we'll put this one up front just because, I, I don't know, we already had this in front stop. So horses rescued on Mount Shakura. So somehow- mm. 
Um, there was some kind of a horse riding event going on up in uh, the Mount Shakura area. So around 8.15, the Hampshire Fishing Game responded to a call for assistance from four horse riders who were lost and needed assistance. So they, the 911 coordinates. So now when we have search and rescue, a lot of times now in New Hampshire, they put this in probably, what, two years ago, Stomp, where mm-hmm. they can basically get the, the the GPS coordinates based on the 911 calls. So yeah. the 911 call placed these folks who were there with their horses on the Weedemo Trail on Mount Shakora. So that's, um, that is a, like a cut across trail, I believe that will take you over to Piper and then over to Liberty. So, um, the riders had taken the Liberty Trail to the Hammond Trail and then were unable to return the same way due to hazardous conditions that, um, you know, the horses basically were like too steep, too rocky, not going to do it. So they cut over to the Hammond Trail and then down the Weedemo Trail and eventually tapped out and they were like, we need 911. They had no lights. They weren't sure of their location. And apparently, what was going on here is that this was like a um, Granite State Carriage Association um, was doing an event. So it was like this annual look to the mountain event. Uh, the riders were, oh boy, stomp. The riders were all from Massachusetts. I'm sorry. Wow. On behalf of the Massachusetts contingency, I apologize. Um, <laughs> looks like older older um, gentlemen and ladies from the Massachusetts region, they had started riding around 10 a.m. That's a long day for the horses. Yeah, sure. Three of the horses fell during the ride due to the treacherous conditions. That's horrible. I know. And sustained minor injuries. Um, once it got dark, they realized that they were in a heap of trouble, so they uh, they called 911. And uh, they were about a mile and a half up on the Weedemo Trail. So that Weedemo Trail is a bit, bit in there. Mm-hmm. And the rescuers provided them with headlamps, warm clothing, food, and water, and uh, they got them over to the Piper Trailhead uh, parking area around 2 a.m., and the horses were loaded into two awaiting horse trailers, and they were transported back to their campsite, which was in Tamworth. So uh, I'm, this is a new one. I've never heard this. It's very interesting. I wonder if the um, the jockeys, I suppose you would say, um, had maps and stuff like that. The equestrians. equestrians. Yes, correct. Um, I, I wonder if they had maps i mean it sounds pretty wild i mean if you're if you take a horse on a wrong trail this could have been really a disaster holy moly yeah yeah and and i would assume that the horses i mean i feel like it sounds like you know riding carriage roads and things like that makes sense like down by the ossipes where you've got like those those trails that go behind like mount roberts yeah over to shaw like those seem like they would be appropriate for horses but um once you get up to those, and even like the lower sections of Chikora, I think are like Piper, I think to a certain extent, once you get up to the split where it goes up to um, Carter Ledge, then maybe it starts getting a little steeper and a little like inappropriate for horses, but it's still I bouldery. It's still boulder, boulderly, but I don't know. It seems like a, a pretty risky thing, but yeah. you know. They probably just didn't have any experience one way or the other. And so what, all's well that ends well, but you know, not a good story. What would happen if they couldn't get them down those trails? Would they have to call in helicopters and harness them out? <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, the horses are big. So, well, and and this isn't a related story. So just to tell you how crazy it is when you're dealing with horses is there was another story that came over. um, I'm in this group called Nick's News. Mm. And it's all about like news in and around. Like this guy started this group and he's got a bunch of people that help him. And they basically monitor the, um, they monitor the, um, whatever the police scanners and stuff like that, the fire department scanners. So it's, it's so great. Like they'll be like, you know, there's a fight between two people at Cumberland farms and, you know, police are on the way or whatever, but they just pushed out a story. Um, I think two days ago mm-hmm. and it was for out of Lovell, Maine. So the Lovell Vo- volunteer fire company got a call at like eight 30 on, um, I guess that would be Sunday night, and um, they were they got a request for mutual aid by the Stoneham Fire Department for a draft horse. So draft horses are huge. So this is a seventeen hundred pound animal, and uh, unfortunately, the animal had sunk about a foot and a half into the saturated paddock ground and was unable to break free of the suction. So they don't know how long the horse had been down. Um, so time was not on their side. It took them about seven hours of digging, securing and resetting this animal to safely move him up or move the horse up. I don't know if it's a he or a she. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, they only gained a few inches at a time. So... It was Vicki Schmidt is the name. She's with Large Animal Rescue, the local veterinarian, Stoneham Fire, Stoneham Fire Department, Lovell Fire, and Stoneham Rescue all worked into the night to free this trap horse. So 3 a.m., um, it finally paid off, and everyone was happy to see that the horse was standing on its own. So, yeah, can you? I couldn't wow. imagine what would happen if you had four horses stuck. But the pictures of this is just horrifying. The horse is laying in this mud pit and can't get out, so... I know there's been a lot of rain up in Brownfield, so I can imagine the levels like the next town over. Absolutely. Wow. That's interesting. Animals in the news. Poor horsey. Yep. So then um, the other thing I I pulled this this article here, Stomp, is like one, we've talked about like with the, remember when the Titan submarine was like, it was up in the air and what was going on. And then we talked about how every once in a while, like these news stories hit like the news cycle, like the uh, the Chilean miners and the, right. the kids in Thailand trapped in the cave, and like the you know the 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 submarine people that are trapped. There's another form of that story that hits the news cycle every like you know six months or so, and it's like the exotic animal that's on the loose, or like <laughs> the kid that falls into like the zoo trap. Oh, of course. So because yeah. you've got like the Tiger King that happened in Netflix, you've got Harambe. Harambe. Um, That's legendary. Then you've got like, um, you know, Blackfish that happened in SeaWorld. So these these like animal captivity things. Um, this is a cool story. So a lioness, so that's a female lion, was videotaped wandering around Berlin, Germany this week. How'd that happen? They don't know. So there's no reports of a missing... Uh, speaking of which, you have a mini lioness walking around behind you right now, just as I'm doing the story. Uh, oh, your little, yeah. Your little kitty. Yeah, is Zylo. Hey, Zylo. Zylo. Yeah. He's just checking out the studio. Yeah, so that's funny. He must have been <laughs> talking about cats. So there's a lion walking around Berlin, Germany, and nobody knows wh- where this lion came from. Basically, like there's the, all the zoos are like, we're not missing a lion. So there is like this personality type of people that are like, you know, hear the story, like there was one guy that had a lion and an alligator living in his New York City apartment yeah. before. So they think what's going on is that there's a, 
there's an organized crime family in in Berlin, oh. and this guy and I didn't know this. I apparently like mafia exist in um, all different um, shapes and sizes. All different stations. I didn't know Germany had organized crime, but they apparently oh, yeah. they have an organized crime guy, and the guy is like he's walking around free, and he's he's like basically. Um, saying to the public, he's like, look, if you see this lion, hopefully, like, just let me know and I'll come get it. So everyone's like, is it his lion? He's like, I'm not going to say if it's mine, but if you see it, let me know so I can come get it. Oh and uh, he's like, I hope some idiot doesn't shoot her. So oh. there's a lion walking around Berlin, Germany, in case you happen to, to be in the area. Well, isn't that a fad amongst celebrities as well, just having these exotic animals? I know Mike Tyson had a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. Um, that's and I true. think there's. There's a couple of hotspots in the U.S. where I think Nevada has very limited regulations around exotic animals. Mm -hmm. And the other state that has very limited um, laws around it is Ohio, I believe. I think that's where one of the people from um, Tiger King was involved in Oklahoma or whatever. But I feel like New Hampshire is like gotta be one of those states where there's people like it's live free or die. Like I guarantee you that there's people that have big cats living with them. Mm, so I feel I like New imagine. Hampshire would be one of those states where they would probably get, um, you know, a, a big lion. I wouldn't shock me if like all of a sudden like a lion got loose in New Hampshire. <laughs> Walking through. I don't know why. I just, Conway. you guys, you guys give off that vibe. I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, why do I say that's yeah. like I want to say that's something that might come out of the North Country? <laughs> that's probably yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, that's my vibe too. So sorry, sorry, Cohas County. Probably yeah, um, yeah. Stereotype. And then we've got a couple of more animal news is here. So Bruno the dog. So we had a, a two day rescue mission that happened on Mount Jefferson. Um, this went on from Sunday until early Tuesday morning. So this was a same cases like remember Odin when we had that episode about Odin, same scenario yeah. like the owner basically took a big dog up up hiking. The dog got in trouble. The owner stayed with him overnight and then finally put out a call for help on Monday morning. Wow! And um, I think you could sort of. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of cool. You could follow it along. You could follow along on social media. So there's a bunch of people that um, were sort of organizing. There was one guy that was like, I'm heading up with a... So the guy did... The, the owner did not have a pack of paw. So mm -hmm. I should actually back up for a second, Stomp. So okay. what happened here is that I think that the guy was hiking up Caps Ridge with a friend... The dog is 115 pound, some sort of a black lab mix or whatever. Coincidentally, I was doing the presidential traverse this weekend with my sister-in-law. Our plan was that we were going to try to get the fastest known time for mixed gender. It's like you had to be like 14 hours. Mm -hmm. um, the plan, like most of our plans, went completely horribly wrong. Um, so Marissa, who's my sister-in-law, we did Madison, then Adams. Her hip started hurting her. My brother was on Jefferson. So he climbed up Jefferson via Caps Ridge to meet us because he was going to give us like food and drinks and stuff because it was a supported attempt. Marissa hurt her hip. So she was like, I'm going to go down Jefferson with my brother, Matt. Mm -hmm. As they're going down, um, 
he, he Matt and Marissa apparently ran into this owner with the dog. Okay. And, you know, they didn't think much of it other than my sister-in-law, who's a dog owner. She thought that the dog looked distressed at the time. So I continued on. I went, you know, I've completed the traverse. We'll talk about that later in the show. I get down to Crawford um, Path and they meet me in the parking lot. And I was like, you know, I get in the car and they had to drive me back to Appalachia to get my car. My sister-in-law specifically says to me as we're driving, she's like, oh my God, we saw this dog on Caps Ridge. The dog didn't look like it was doing that well. I hope that he gets down okay. And sure enough, it was this dog that okay. ended up, yeah. So eventually, I think what ended up happening is the owner went down the castle trail and then they decided to cut over the Cornice Trail and they got stuck right at the intersection where the Castle Trail and Cornice Trail connect. And then gotcha. Monday morning, he puts the call out over social media, doesn't have a dog, he doesn't have the pack-a-paw, doesn't have a dog sling. Even with a pack-a-paw, he's like, I don't have the strength to Holy carry this moly. dog. That's a lot. So disaster, 115-pound yeah. dog. No kidding. So the owner stayed with him. The friend went back down to Caps Ridge to see if she could find some people to help. Oh. Didn't have any luck because it's a Monday morning. Luckily, like the word started getting out. I think hikers started arriving at the location around like 12, 1 o'clock. There was one mom that went on there and she's like, Me, my son and his two friends are supposed to hike like Loom or, or Liberty, or Flume or Liberty. Mm-hmm. They're rerouting to come help you. So these three kids, like these three 19-year-old kids were like, we're coming up to help. Um, right. So they, they bailed on their hike. There was another group of people that came and it sounds like eventually by like 2, 3 o'clock on Monday, they got their act together and they were able to, I guess, get a harness around the dog and start carrying it. But like they were making slow, slow time. Eventually they got enough people together and it sounds like they made it down to the trailhead at like two or three in the morning on Tuesday, early Tuesday morning. So hmm. almost two days out in the wilderness with the, with the dog. So what, what kind of dog? Um, I saw a picture of the owner and, uh, and with the dog and it looked like some sort of a big, like maybe like a, um, it was a black lab, but something, okay. some big dog mix. Gotcha. I'm not really sure. Heavy so, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And the owner was like, he's like, look, you know, the dog had hiked the 4,000 footers. He's always been a good hiker. I've never had any issues with him. He is getting older. I guess he's eight years old. And he's like, look, we just made a mistake. I love my dog. I never wanted to put the dog in that position. I didn't leave him. I did everything I could given the circumstances. So it is what it is. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. but it's just a reminder that, you know, when you're going out there, I saw so many dogs on the Prezi Traverse and, you know, big dogs. And if something happens, you know, you got to be able to get your dog down. You got to have the equipment. So that's another lesson. Yeah. And the weather was so weird that weekend. Yeah. I mean, the weather was fine the day we were there. I don't know how much, it, what it was like on Monday or Tuesday. But exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well. Um, <clears throat> yep. Jeez. And that's it. And then the only other story I have is that I did fall for a joke online. Somebody had posted a, a a news article saying that a crocodile was spotted in Conway Lake, but I didn't look at the news and I sent it to Stomp <laughs> and it was actually just a picture of a croc shoe yeah. floating on, on the lake. And I, I I was like, oh, they got me. But it was like progressive zoom in, slowly zooming yeah, yeah, in. Zoom in and then you'd be like, <laughs> oh, I get it. It was really good. Yeah, that was awesome. Yep. Yep. Uh, 
Okay, so next up here, we've got Emily's hike this weekend. So Stomp, I think you're hosting a group. You guys are going up Cannon, and then I'm mm-hmm. hosting a group. We're going up Garfield. So yeah, uh, right now the weather looks a little sketchy, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, this, as you know, this is a fundraiser um, that is, I apparently met their goal um, at yeah. the moment. Um, my picture's not coming in here, but I believe it was like over 80K. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. So this is going to seed the funding for the foundation that Emily's parents are uh, creating to help educate hikers on hiking safety and um, provide like um, some outreach to younger hikers. So Mm. um, it's good fundraiser and Emily's parents, my understanding is, is they're actually training and ready to go. They're going to hike up um, and follow the route that she took when she um, unfortunately passed away last November. So should be a a great day. Uh, We'll include some links in the show notes if you want to donate to to any of the, uh, the teams and you know, we're looking forward to it. It'll be fun. I've got like eight people on my team. I just told everyone, you know, we're going to meet at the parking lot in the morning and then just go up at a moderate pace and Mm -hmm. You know, well, it'll be fun to get to meet some new people and yeah. I'm going to be hiking with a few people I know already, but like mostly new people, which is cool. Sure. Yeah. It's the uh, Emily M. Satella Persistence and Safety Charitable Foundation. Yeah. And then also there's the after party as well at uh, Bretton Woods. And if you go to the hikingbuddies.org website, you can look in there as to uh, how to reserve and uh, participate in that event. Pretty yes. cool. Yeah, nice work. Cool, sir. And then Stomp, you have on the script here a 93-year-old Summit's Half Dome. I feel like we did this story last week, but maybe really? we didn't. I don't yeah. remember this one. Yeah, 93-year-old guy, uh, Summit's Half Dome. Matter of fact, I just saw a video about a 2019 incident that I will link in the show notes as well which is about a, a lady who actually fell to her death on Half Dome. And so I'm actually doing this hike in September. So okay. I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, all right, if this 93-year-old guy can do it, that's great. But then on the other hand, I'm like, this lady slipped off and fell and died. So What, what do you I'm mean? Torn. Was she the uh, solo climber? We talked no, to- she was with a group. And oh, like, wow. Okay. She was with a group. It started raining. So she decided to bail on the hike and she started going down. She slipped on the cables and then um, went off to the right side of the cables and just slowly, she was, I think she was okay for a little while and then slowly started slipping as people were trying to come help her. Uh-huh. And eventually she slipped down about five, 600 feet. And then unfortunately they recovered her. Um, she had died. So that's terrible. A little scary. So it's like, and you know, I'm looking at videos and I'm seeing stuff. I think the key with this hike for Half Dome is that it's got to be decent weather conditions. I think we're going to be at Little Yosemite campsite. We'll get on there early in the morning. You don't want to mess around in the afternoon if the weather's going to be bad because you don't want to be up there. If there's thunderstorms, you don't want to be up there if it's wet or raining. So, mm-hmm. well, but should be a lot of good content for the Instagram stomp. <laughs> your, your trip anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Yes. Oh, exactly. Um, so that's that. Next up is uh, we got a bunch of emails about like the forecast at the front of the show. 99.9% of them are pro forecast being there. Yeah. And, you know, they're basically like, yeah, most of the people that listen to the show are experienced hikers and probably have it, you know, already know about the the forecast. But for new hikers, like it's just, it's, it's just good information for them. So mm-hmm. safety first for us. So we're just keeping that. So. Thank yeah. you for everyone. Absolutely. Um, next up here, Stomp, you had um, 
done a float on the Pemi this Sunday, so you're Finally. no longer a hiker. You are a uh, a river dirt bag, a seasonal floater, a seasonal floater. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm a floater. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, speaking of that, so then you found a site that tells you what the fecal bacteria alerts are for bodies of water in yeah. New Hampshire. So yes, yeah, always a good important. thing to take a look at in the Pemi. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's um, you know, as I was looking at the USGS to try to get a sense of how high the Pemi was. Ended up being fine, a little bit high, but uh, was moving fast. But from the USGS site, um, I found this healthy swimmer or swimming map for New Hampshire, and it gives you alerts of ponds, uh, essentially lakes, reservoirs, that type of thing, uh, where you may find this bacteria, this cyanobacteria, which is a fecal-based bacteria. So you'll find these um, red blooms, they call them, reddish blooms, and that's what you want to watch out for. So... Uh, current warnings are for Northampton State Park Beach, uh, Seabrook Harbor Beach, and then several other ponds throughout New Hampshire. So definitely a nice yeah. resource. And and these warnings are spread out throughout the state. They're not just local to the coast. They're North Country, Central New Hampshire, and elsewhere. Yeah, and it's something that I, we have to deal with quite a bit where I live. I'm in Amesbury, Mass, and we're sort of at the end of the Merrimack River. So whenever there's a lot of large rain event, um, Lowell, Haverhill, uh, Lawrence, a lot of those those communities upriver will release their overflow because they just can't keep up with the with the processing. So mm. um, it does result in high bacteria levels, and you know a lot of times there's like these these pictures you can see in Haverhill and Amesbury and Newburyport where the water just turns brown and everybody says, oh, that's fecal matter. A lot of times it's mostly mm-hmm. just like things stirring up from the bottom of the riverbed, but it, it is, you know, there's certainly not, it's not uncommon at the end of the river for um, shutdown. Matter of fact, I think Plum Island was shut down for a couple of days uh, because of the, the, the bacteria count. So it's kind of gross. Yeah, it's definitely nasty. Unfortunate. Yep. I, I, All right, next. I pulled this next one, Mike, actually, because um, I thought of you. This is in Florida. Have you seen yeah. this news? I didn't see this. So this, this is, is fascinating. Um, a wall of water. Oh, oh my God. If I was ever, if a rogue wave ever hit, I would freak out. So yeah. 18 foot high uh, wall of water rose out of the calm sea yeah. and crashed ashore, smashing hundreds of vehicles parked on the beach. Daytona Beach. And about... Area yeah, Daytona Beach, so that's not too far from where I hang out in Vero Beach. It's maybe about an hour and a half north, so mm. that's crazy. So a freak wave estimated at 27 miles long and 250 feet wide caused by shifting sands from an underwater landslide. Wild. Um, the wave was estimated to peak at 18 feet high. Yeah. So seas were otherwise one to two feet, so... Um, apparently it's a common thing at Daytona, but really causes waves that size. So I'll have to keep, that's a new thing I'm going to have to keep an eye on in my morning walks now, Stomp. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 75 people were injured and I bet they could have been killed if they were pinned between some of these cars that got rattled. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, people don't, I mean, if you've ever been down there, like you don't realize, but like those, those are barrier islands. So you, you're on A1A and like the distance between the, 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 Oceanside Beach and then the back river is never more than like a quarter mile to a half a mile wide. Mm. You know, so if you have a rogue wave like that, it could it could completely go over the entire island in some of the low sections. Yeah, no doubt about it. So I brought so, that up because it was neat because we did see some landslide activities in Vermont and the roads obviously were washed out. 
Um, so yeah, just an interesting. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Recently, Ruggles Mine, which is located in Grafton County, or actually the town of Grafton off of Route 4, um, was just recently purchased by uh, private owners. So the state didn't purchase it. It's, it's been in limbo for a while. As I have fond memories as a kid going there and just collecting a bunch of mica and quartz and things like that. But um, this is a really neat place to take your kids if uh, you have nothing to do. Uh, it's just a gigantic mine. There are mineral deposits uh, in the area. And apparently it dates back to the Devonian period, and uh, which is, I guess, 350 million to 400 million years old. And at the time, it's like you can find over 150 minerals. Uh, today, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but you can basically go into this mine and just go in with a bucket and dig away. So especially for all you minecrafters out there, it might be a nice time spent. You can definitely find things like quartz and amethyst and whatnot. But um, so this mine dates back to the 17, well, the 1800s. Sam Ruggles, who was somebody that lived in the 1700s and died in 1843, started uh, commercial mica in the United States at different sites, including this site. And um, he began as a grocer and was a merchant of West India goods in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, never lived in New Hampshire. He lived and died in Boston and uh, hired locals up here in Grafton to mine all this material. Um, local lore states that the mine was started in 1803, but there is no documented evidence that supports the claim. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I saw some pictures of it. Like they had this really cool, like column. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. There, which is like, it looks like a giant, it almost looks like it could be a set from uh, the movie planet of the apes. You know, it's got that sort of vibe to it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's such a cool place. And at the, the top of the, the road that you have to take to get to the mine, there's just this absolutely amazing uh, view of the local mountains. So it's definitely a great spot to check out. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will have to take a look at that. I don't spend enough time in that that part of Western New Hampshire, but I I think it's close to like Mark Cardigan, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So Maybe next time I hike that, I'll, uh, I'll go over there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's about it. So it was like, basically it was owned, uh, open to the public in 63 to 2015 and then it closed, uh, and was put up for sale. So there was a failed petition online in 2018 to turn it into a New Hampshire state park. And apparently that, uh, didn't happen. So we'll see, you know, it's had a sort of a sketchy history of, uh, success, you know, trying to stay open, but just spread the word. See if we can. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wonder if they could like you know, maybe they could uh, open up like a um, a mountain biking park around it. I bet you there'd be a lot of interest <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and, and seriously, some of the caves go well down underground, so you can bring your headlamps and just. I don't know if you can get lost, but there are some deep, deep caves. Stomp. Remember I said every six months or so, those like lost in the caves. Let's not, let's not encourage anybody. Yeah. I mean, so. we should do a slasher field trip to Ruggles. Oh boy. Oh boy. Hey. 
Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp. All right, well, uh, moving on to pop culture here, Stomp. I think the only thing that I'm currently obsessed with right now is that uh, John and Kate plus eight. So this is a, a TV show that me and my wife used to watch because our kids are around the same age. So we would commiserate with John and Kate about the difficulties of raising children back in the day when our kids were little. Um, I always sort of had, I sort of looked at Kate side-eyed and said, there's something up with her. She's a little bit of a miserable person. So now that the kids are getting older, it's a little bit of drama. There's two kids that are ostracized from Kate and they're living with John and John's divorced from Kate. Mm -hmm. It's a whole thing. I don't want to get into the details here because we're not a pop culture show, but that's what I'm into right now. So if anybody's into it, feel free to send me a message and we can commiserate about John and Kate plus eight. Yeah. All right. I'll check it out. Uh, we've been binging um, Severance. That's on Apple TV, and it's um, it's so cool. It, I guess, it won fourteen nominations at the uh, the Emmys this last year, and it has a really neat cast. It was it's mostly directed by Ben Stiller, so it's this dark, really comedy dystopian drama. And uh, the basic premise is that people that sign up for this Severance program, um, basically, it's like a chip in your brain that separates your your work memories from your your non-work memory. So they go into work and then they come out and they forget their whole day and vice versa. But it's just so great because you have um, uh, Christopher Walken, John Turturro, um, Patricia Arquette. It's a really great cast. Oh, wow. It's so great. Um, But yeah, we can't stop watching it. It's one season, so it's nine episodes. But dude, check it out. It's so great. How many streaming services do you have? Too many, too many. Too many. Too many. We, we usually do the whole, let's just watch it for this particular show and then delete it. Uh, so that's our usual mode. Like, for instance, we, we're watching that uh, Dead City, the AMC thing. So we'll delete that when AMC is done. So. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. Good for you. All right, Stomp. So, uh, Valclu Scare. Yes. Do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate, and this can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There is a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem, Vaucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit vaucluesgear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code, code, (laughs) promo code slasher, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount. And plus, you'll let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. And uh, I think we have a few donations this week, which is very cool. Very cool. Excellent. And first, we have Valley Bear Running Club. They donated five coffees and uh, put a plug in there for the Waterville Valley AIA.org. Um, <laughs> he made some funny comments about it being the most historic uh, outdoor organization, but with the worst name. So that was sort of funny. Uh, they take care of all the athletic events and things in the uh, valley next we have three coffees sent in by, by brad 
And um, he just wanted to say thanks for Dave's episode um, regarding the old growth and forest management. And then we have Rob at Smoke Bomb Hill. He donated five and uh, is requesting larger free Daphne t-shirt sizes at the Cafe Press store. So we'll get working on that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So finally, we have a donation of five coffees from Northeast Alpine Start, who listens to the podcast during the commute from Conway to Plymouth three to four times a week. Thank you and thanks for the uh, recent feedback and uh, Daphne and... Luna are reviewing that feedback and hopefully we can achieve that coveted five-star review. So these are your donations. Thank you very much, everybody. Much appreciated. <laughs> uh, beer talk. So I am drinking a, like I said, I'm down to my last beers here. So I've got small change, a little rain, yeah. which is an American peel ale. It's 4.9% alcohol. And it looks like it is, yeah, small change brewing. Oh. So it's pretty good. Pretty good. Nice and smooth. Yeah, IPA. Nice. Or APA. Or American Pale Ale. All right. Nice. I have a Northwoods Brewing Company forever locked. It's pretty cool to uh, antelope or whatever, bucking, oh, yeah. bucking horns. It's a double IPA with Citra, Idaho 7, and Azaka, which is... Per- Code that only Steve from Reckless could decipher. But uh, a portion of the proceeds from this beer is donated to the Wildlife Heritage Foundation of New Hampshire, which is pretty neat, supporting the promotion and protection of New Hampshire's great outdoor traditions. And that's uh, NewHampshireWildlifeHeritage.org. So it's, it's pretty tasty. I like it. Excellent. Excellent. So we're back to our regular beer drinking fat Mike and Stomp days now. <laughs> That's right. Getting warmed up for winter. Get a, put that winter coat on. Yeah, exactly. So normally this would be the time when we do the uh, the recent hike stomp, but I've got a. I want to talk about the presidential traverse, and then I also yeah, want to talk it. about an article about um, Jesse Chen who passed away on a presidential traverse last June. So why don't we okay. hold that until after we have uh, Tom and Christina on? Uh, okay. But have you done any recent hikes? I have not. I've been doing a lot of um, running and um, just sort of fluky again it's funny after the mount washington i kept up with the running and i feel like i'm still gaining which is fantastic for you yeah i'm excited about it but i did run into a little posterior tib problem so if you're if you grab the uh inner side of your calf muscles that's where the posterior tib is and it runs down to your heel the the inner part of your heel and i i think i sprained it pretty darn good just the other day i was just like hey let's do that hill one more time and as i started up boom just like popped on me. I'm like, damn it. So I think I need better shoes. I, that's the moral of the story or some okay. orthotics to boost up my arches. Yeah. Uh, what do you use for running shoes? Uh, Sockneys, which were, were always my go-to brand for shoes. Yeah. The Sockneys. But I think I might actually shift gears and go towards a mountain runner with more support. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know um, whether you need a neutral or, or whatever, but I I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Brooks. I use the Cascadias oh, for yeah, yeah. trail running, and then I use Ghost for road running. And Okay. You know. Yeah, I'll look into it, but I got to do something because before this little spasm happened, I was getting pain in my heel, not plantar fascia, but like local to that muscular insertion. So I got to watch out for that. Okay. Getting old. 
getting old. Yep. Um, yeah. So next sponsor here, Stomp. Alzheimer's, 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Hike one of New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own adventure. Consider joining us this summer or during the fall foliage season. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Our hope is that one day, Alzheimer's will be nothing but a memory. Learn more at alts.org, right slash 48 peaks. Excellent. So now we move on to notable um, listener hikes of the week, Stomp. Yeah, we right on. We got Yeah, we have several. So uh, A. Folsom 33 hiked up Mount Madison, Star Lake, and uh, had a brew at Big Day Brewing. L.B. Boyd and Robert Boyd had an overnight at Kirasage Fire Tower. I can't, I can't believe people can get there and find it empty sometimes still. I find that hard to believe. That would be my biggest concern. Exactly. Is like getting up there, setting up, and like then some random people show up. And like, I, yeah, I don't know totally. what it is. Like, I have this mental block about like shelters. Like, I can't just, I wouldn't be able to fall asleep with like random people that I, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Sort of diminishes the uh, the romance of the whole thing. Um, Nick hikes and plays guitar. Did Camel's Hump. Zoe Mahoney, single day Pemmy with Hiking Buddies crew. That's pretty neat. Um, Mountain Ginger and Rocket Outdoors tagged us and uh, they completed the New England 67 on Bigelow, Avery, and West Peak. Uh, oh, that's, good for them. that's fantastic. Congrats. Uh, Chadwick 66 did a Northern Prezi on a Bluebird day and got to meet, quote unquote, legendary Mike from some podcast. <laughs> yeah yeah he, he he was like are you mike and i was like oh no <laughs> so, no they were great i met i met him and his friend and um you know he's local to he he's local to where you know southampton i think so it was great meeting him and um talking a little bit so it's always fun to meet some listeners out there so they were they were killing it mike you're like one step away from the radio broadcast hall of fame for goodness sake this Please. is great uh l Underscore W underscore Tet did Mount Pogus, Big Rock Cave Trail, Old Pogus Trail, Lawrence Trail, and Cabin Trail. And Griff Ottawada did 24 out of 48, being Jefferson, and uh, ran into Mike's fam coming down uh, Jefferson, I believe. Yes. Man, it's such a small world, huh? Yeah, yeah. I think that... Um yeah, they were talking about the podcast and my brother heard them and then was like, oh, I'm, you're talking about the Slasher podcast? And they were like, yeah. I'm already on it. <laughs> he's like, I'm Mike's brother. And I think that's the story. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that's what he said. That's wicked funny. Yeah, I think he said something like, you don't want to end up on that podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, boy. So uh, let's see a couple more. It's Jess Behavior. First time on my wash via Ammo and Jewel. Nice. A hunting hippie tackled the classic Frank Ridge. And uh, finally, Run Cast Run made it up Mount Willard with a pup named Emma. Excellent. So what do you think, Mike? Who's the winner? I would say the the, the 67 finishers. So that's um, Mountain, Mountain Ginger. Ginger. And Rocket Mountain Outdoors. Ginger, if you're listening, I have my own Ginger. My middle daughter's a redhead, so I'm, I'm on your team. And then, where is it, Rocket Outdoors? Yes, yeah. Nice work, guys. Yeah. Hey, did Ron, Rhonda Willette didn't didn't post? She finished her sixty seven. She's a listener. She's she's a great friend. That's and, possible. Um, 
she finished her 67 on Katahdin. So okay. I'm just going to give her a shout out. So oh, congratulations, Rhonda. We're super proud of you. You're out there every weekend and you're killing it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, it, it's it's tough. Sometimes we miss these tags uh, just with all the information that comes through the website. But uh, yeah, congrats for sure. Excellent. All right, Stomp. So let's go into our segment where we get a chance to talk with Christina and Tom all about running and dental health and wellness and, and all that fun stuff. So let's let's move into our guest of the week. All right. Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. All right, Stomp, we have two guests here. Are you ready to manage this? This is a, There's a lot going on here already. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. I'll okay. do my best. Hello, Tom and Christina. How are you? We're doing great. I'm speaking for Christine. I can just see how great she's doing. <laughs> I am doing great. <laughs> this is great. Excellent. Excellent. So, yeah. So, um, thanks for joining yeah, thanks us. Thanks for joining us. And um, we want to start off to, I think, welcome back, Christina. So, you were on the show like probably like a year ago or so. Are you recovered from that experience? I am totally recovered. Well, welcome back. We weren't sure if you were going to get you back from the West Coast. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then Tom, so Tom is like a big, he's a big wig here. He's the president and CEO of Northeast Delta Dental. So you, but you finally made it to the big time, I think, Tom, at this, in this show. Absolutely. I, when, when, when I was approached at the cog about being on this show, like I dropped everything to figure it all out and make sure that I made time for this because there's nothing more than I like doing outside of my real job than talking about wellness and things, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And the key to yeah. being on That's the show awesome. is to come on as a guest and not as a subject of one of the search and rescue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, so great. So Christina, um, we want to welcome you back. So you, um, you are the, is it the co-owner of White Mountain Endurance? You and Rem, right? No, now we're just race directors. We're employees. I own the coaching still. So that's okay. my business. That's my full-time job now. And we work for Aero Viper Running, which has been an incredible partnership. They have given us a lot of things we wouldn't have been able to do without them. Excellent. And can you tell talk a little bit about Aero Viper? So when we randomly somehow ended up moving to Arizona for the winter, <laughs> um, it was an Aero Viper that I was supposed <laughs> to go run. And everywhere we went, like runners, non-runners, all we heard about was Aravipa and how incredible they are. And people just loved them and finally went to the event and totally understood like why the event is so cool. And then met Jamil, the owner, and realized he's just, just his ethics, his values, like everything was really in alignment with ours. And, um, you know, kind of had a, I had a breast cancer scare and that was kind of what initiated, do we really want to keep the races? And um, the answer was no, just in case I needed treatment. And we're still trying to figure out what's going on with that. It's been um, quite the, the process. So that was the reason yeah. we had approached Jamil, but had a conversation with him, went for a run and got to know each other better and figured it'd be a great fit. So um, we brought him to New England to help showcase what we have here. 
Let me just add just uh, with uh, this. Sometimes when um, the local sells to a, you know you know a national, things change. But this did add to exactly what Christina said, and Jamil's been great. It added a lot to the the race. We still have the local flavor, which is what you know the the local crowd wants. You know, but the added things that Jamil has given the race in terms of the pot, you know, the broadcasting it, et cetera. It's been, it's been, it's been terrific. And, you know, we intend um, as a local company to continue to be um, one of the you know, major sponsors, you know, for our Christina's cog race. I still call it Christina's cog race because who would have, who would have thought about you know, my wife, Ellen, I, um, I don't come often home for dinner because I'm always working late. But when I do, I have to come with a notepad because she's always dreaming up different things that we should do. So somehow she, a couple of years ago, uncovered, she goes, I'm not gonna, you're not going to believe this, but there's a race on the other side of Mount Washington called the Cog. So we, uh, and that's, and that's basically how we connected. Christine and I knew each other a little bit from our, the field that we're in dental. But um, I'm so happy that this, you know, this connection occurred. And I think just adding Jamil's company to it is just, you know, just adding to it. Yeah. So then, so White Mountain Endurance has grown. You've got bigger backing and then you sort of have your focuses. You can just focus on the race director activity and you've got that support that you need because you were really, it was just the two of you that were really managing everything at the time. It was overwhelming. So now we have a whole team behind us, which is so cool. And we have an event crew that they've hired out here on the East Coast, which has been an incredible help. So now we get to focus on directing the race and providing a cool experience for everybody. Wow. And I had joked around yeah, a little bit about is. like um, how, so I, I, we're friends on Facebook and I had seen your, um, you know, I'd followed along with your journey out West. So you were out there for, boy, I don't know, six or nine months or something. And I, every time I saw pictures of you, like you were glowing and I was like, I don't know, she's, I don't think she's coming back. Can you talk a little bit about the experience going out there? Oh my gosh. It was so amazing. Um, just by chance happened to reconnect with friends that taught me how to mountain bike when I was Oh my goodness, 19 years old and hadn't seen them in years. And it was like, we never left. And then Rem and I had, um, we like to joke, we went to a wine tasting and ended up deciding we were going to move out there. So I sold my house in New Hampshire. Um, We bought a place in Arizona and then we had two homes 20 minutes apart, which was really silly. So we figured why not have two homes halfway across the country. So now um, we're going to spend the winters out in Arizona because we just fell in love with the trail running, the community, the people, um, the sunshine every day, and the desert critters are amazing. And then we love the mountains here, and we love New England. And you know, there's a little bit of a cranky attitude sometimes, and the weather's tough, and the bugs are tough, and <laughs> you know, you have to force yourself no. to get out there. But the mountains are amazing, and there's a bazillion running races, and you know, there's this community up here is really cool too. So. I feel like we have the best of both worlds with um, two totally different running communities, experiences, and terrain to play on. How would you how would you describe running out? What like my experience? So I've been out to Sedona in that area, and I've done some hiking and some running. Yeah. But in the summertime, it was extremely hot, and I always yeah. feel like it's it's similar to Florida, where you know if you run three or four miles in the Arizona desert, that's like the equivalent of running eight or nine miles in you know New England in weather. So is it like that in the winter, or you didn't find it to be like that? No, and there's mountains where we live. So that's what's really cool is, um, but they're runnable because of switchbacks. 
So a 20 mile run might take you eight hours here. A 20 mile run out there takes you four hours. So it's very different. You can cover huh. a lot more terrain. Um, a lot of elite athletes out there, which is really wild. Um, you're out running on the trail and you just see this like, you know, fancy person go cruising by and, you know, on Strava, it's neat to look at their times and it's, it's a kind of a wild place to be in the wintertime. Would not want to be out there in the summertime. Um, the heat looks crazy. And we love the mountains here. Yeah, well, we're glad that you uh, that you came back. And can you talk a little bit about, like, how has the season been? What, what was the recap for the races that you've already done? And then what do you have coming up? Um, I mean, considering what Mother Nature threw at us, I think we did really well. To Cora, as um, Stomp can True. attest to, there was a lot of blood. Ram and I were just covered in blood. I mean, it was, there were a few people that had to go get stitches. Um, kind of a terrifying race to host, a lot of accidents, but I think everybody managed it really well. Um, we have several people, including the Ram and sure. self wilderness first aid. So we were able to manage um, and decide who has to go to the hospital, who we can bandage up there, and um, didn't have to call the Forest Service except for a lightning strike that caught a tree on fire. And they were very thankful, and they came out with their little backpacks and hiked up the trail and put the uh, put the fire out. The cog was supposed to have lightning, and that turned out to just be cold and wet and windy. So we were very fortunate. And um, there was flooding on the White Lake course, so we had to actually change the course because it was way steep in some areas. So we're hoping Jigger Johnson is a little easier in Kilkenny, but um, at this point, you know, we're ready for whatever Mother Nature wants to throw our way. Okay, and for the listeners, mm-hmm. the Jigger Johnson course is it's it's the same. So basically, you start South Moat, and then you're going across the moats and um, Attatash, and then connect into. Uh, the Waterville Valley area, is that still the route? For the 50-mile, yes. The 100K adds Kerrigan. And then for the 100-mile, they start and finish in Waterville Valley. Okay. Okay. So it's in, it's an insane race. How many people finished last year? I don't remember. I think there was about a 40% finish rate, which was really surprising. Um, we're not sure, especially with how wet things have been this year, how many people are going to finish the 100-mile um, we do anticipate, you know, the same finish rate for the 50 mile and the 100K, but the 100 mile is, I mean, we could have no finishers. We could have 50 finishers. So time will tell. Interesting. Okay. And then uh, for the Kilkenny race, that essentially that starts at uh, Mount Wombeck and then cuts across through the weeks and then over to Cabot and up to Rogers Ledge. And then there's two options. You can run just one direction, which is what, like 25 miles? Yeah. And the 50 milers start and finish at South Pond. So it's got a cool um, finish line, kind of like Chipora, where it's a huge field. There's a pond and, you know, we we actually barbecue. We don't have the option of a food truck because people are finishing at like two, three in the morning. So um, we're grilling. Excellent. Uh, wow. So if any, anybody's out there and they really want some crazy adventures, we'll include those in the show notes for the links to register for both of those races. And then are you still looking for volunteers as well? Desperately, um, especially Jigger Johnson, we desperately need more volunteers. Uh, we need 168 volunteers to help us out with that race. And um, if anybody's willing to volunteer, their credits are good for Aeroviper races and White Mountain Endurance races. And you will get unlimited thank yous from not only us, but the runners. Okay. Yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. We'll be sure to plug that again big time. Yeah. Snop, you get out there and volunteer. We have to find a starting song that's better than Highway to Hell. I mean, that was a good one. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that was appropriate for the cog. No question. Hey, Christine, last question for you. I'm sure that we'll have more for you, but um, I feel like last time we talked, you your running was evolving and you were kind of going from, you know, I want to be competitive to I'm letting that go. And then you were kind of getting to the point where you're just like, I'm running for myself. Can you talk a little bit about where are you at with your sort of running journey at this point? It's a party. Um, I am. Yeah. And I'm. I'm still, I'm still fast. I still try to push myself and push my limits, but I'm also doing this for myself. And I am signed up for two races, not to, not necessarily be competitive, but personal goals, a hundred miler um, out in Arizona. It's an Air Viper race. And then I want to try my first 250 mile race in May next year. So I signed up, it's in Arizona and I don't know if I can finish, but what's the worst thing that happens? I, I don't finish. Yeah, exactly. And super inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how the ultra runners do it. I did a presidential traverse this weekend and I was like, that's enough for me. So You had good weather. I did have good weather. Yeah, thankfully. So, all right. Well, um, we wanted to meet Tom a little bit here. So, so Tom, president and CEO of Northeast Delta Dental. So that's a big job there, right? It's a fun job. It is pretty big. We've got three states, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. We have a million people. Um, that have our dental coverage. Um, there's a huge expectation that we get involved um, in the community. So I'm on, I'm on lots of nonprofit boards doing fundraising. Um, but the biggest passion I have is population health. And so um, I'm so happy that my board of directors allows me to go out and um, sponsor races. And how we got into it, candidly, was about 25 years ago. I got a call at the last minute uh, from the then race director of the Mount Washington Road Race, Bob Teshik, and he said, the prior sponsor just dropped out. Can you help? And I hadn't really gotten into running then, and so I said, we'll give it a shot, and the rest is history. Love the runners, and once we started sponsoring financially races, and I said, if I'm going to be there sponsoring, I'm going to I'm going to start you know running in them. So... So while I have, a, I do have a big job and put in a ton of hours. It's a, it's a labor of love, and uh, and as uh, Christina will also tell you, I mean, oral health is so important. Um, and so one of the things the last year I've been working on is putting in the Medicaid coverage for adults in New Hampshire who, you know, people my age who literally have never been to the dentist. So it's been pretty exciting that uh, doing sort of purpose driven work um and there's all sorts of connections the these road races and trail races give us an opportunity to get the rural health message out yeah i'm curious so tom just to share a little bit of my own story when i was in college you know i had braces i didn't really take care of my my teeth after um having braces through college and i went through like a four or five year period where my teeth kind they really got in bad shape and you know, I was at the point where I had, I, I think I had a job and I start I had insurance, but I was afraid about like, you know, how much time is this going to be? I'm going to be embarrassed to go to the dentist to show my teeth, um, you know, and how much is this going to cost me? Can you talk a little bit about like, not even young people, but just what you touched on a little bit before is if somebody's listening and they've got, you know, dental health issues that they're concerned about there, but they're afraid to go to the dentist or they're afraid about the cost or the, um, the the commitment can you talk a little bit about like what would be your advice to people absolutely get to the dentist so um it's taken 
me probably two decades for for the body politic for politicians and a lot of people don't understand that you can't have good overall health without good oral health and it's not just the self-esteem issues it's all the systemic relations that are now proven between medical and dental and yet as you point out that there's certain segment of the population um, definitely have a phobia about going to the dentist. So to give you an example, um, and this is based on actual data that we have, even where the employer pays for 100% of the premium for their employees to go to the dentist, still between 20 and 30% of people don't go to the dentist. So one of our roles at Delta Dental is to encourage people to go to the dentist and so that's where the connection with road racing comes in because it allows me to get that message out there but also things like delta dental stadium it's not about corporate flattery it's about getting the message that you need to go to the dentist for good overall health um and the added thing of course too is self-esteem because if you know if you're not smiling um you're not going to be feeling good about yourself you're not going to be able to get a job so that's part of it too but the bigger thing candidly is the systemic relationship between oral health and good medical health yeah i agree and i think you know the, the anxiety of going to the dentist to begin with was was it went over it, it disappeared quickly and then once we had a plan you know my my dentist was great he got me on invisalign a whole deal so i got i got a great smile now stomp but um i definitely encourage people to make sure that they are um you know taking your advice there and then one of the question before we get into running is I'm in corporate HR and I know that like probably like early 2010s or so was when I started seeing like a lot of companies putting in like their own wellness practices within their HR organizations. But it sounds like Northeast Delta Dental, like you guys are so far ahead of the curve on that. And then you're also different in that your focus on wellness is not just within your own organization, but externally by these sponsorships. So can you talk a little bit about like, was that something that you found um, was unique or did you learn that from some other organization? Can you talk about sort of your philosophy around wellness? Sure. Long before it sort of became the popular thing to do, I mean, we've had a uh, fitness center here at Delta Dental. We had a corporate fitness trainer who really is a, you know, was a cheerleader, you know, for employee colleagues. And I was blessed that my dad was um, a little bit before ahead of his time. He was uh, big into the YMCA and he had... um, totally got me into wellness, you know, as a little boy. So when I started at Northeast Delta Dental in 1995, you know, my goal was to create a wellness wellness culture because I felt, I felt that if people felt good about themselves, you know, mentally and physically, that would ultimately deliver better external service because the truth of the matter is, if you feel good about yourself, you're going to Uh, speak to customers in a very positive way as well. So I felt that that uh, wellness culture would create um, a better, you know, business climate for us to grow and it's proven. And then, of course, as time evolved, more and more companies started to, you know, get into wellness and and so forth. And so we were often used as a uh, benchmark company for others to, you know, model their you know, their wellness initiatives. Um, And, you know, and sometimes you can't prove that, you know, it's saved on, uh, you know, your your medical premiums for your employees. But I can tell you definitively um, to this day, like we 
hardly have any openings. Um, you know, m- most CEOs complain about, you know, staffing shortages and they have all these openings, but people apply to Delta Dental for jobs that don't even exist yet because they want to be affiliated with a purpose-driven company um, you know, that has a purpose or spreading good oral health, but also a great place, you know, um, uh, to work with for. So it's been a real exciting uh, professional journey for me because it's uh, I've been able to do, I think, what I want to do in terms of oral health, but also population health and, and for the community at large. Yeah, and at some point, so your involvement in sponsoring races, and some at some point, you yourself got the bug and became a running maniac. So, can you talk a little bit about your uh, your evolution there? Sure. So it's sort of what I said earlier. You know, when I when we sort of bailed out uh, the Mount Washington Road Race, which might have ended, um, I started to go and started to you know witness the camaraderie of all the runners, how, how runners feel after the race, after the races. And so I said, well, we're going to sponsor, you know, then I'm going to start running in them. And then we started to create different series. We have a great series here in the Concord area called the Capital Air Race Series, which we are the, we're the major sponsor of. Then there's the, um, the Delta Dental Points Chase Series. Um, we sponsor all of these. And a lot of them are linked to charities, some oral health, some non-oral health. And uh, it's, it's just a great part of my life. I get to uh, see so many people that I, that, you know, that I love. And, and that then became, you know, the genesis of the, the book, Stories from the Starting Line, because all these people like Christina, you know, that I've met over the years, we wanted to interview and sort of capture, you know, the, you know their spirit. Yeah, and I, I read the book as well, and it's great. And there's a lot in there. Um, I want to talk about sort of the process of how you went about interviewing people, but I just want to stay on the Mount Washington Road Race for a moment, just because. And Tom, I don't know if you know the background, but Stomp and I met through a rideshare service back in like I don't even know, probably 2008, 2009 as yeah, participants yeah. in the Mount Washington road race. So that's how we met each other and became friends as we did a ride share. And then we just stayed in touch through hiking and running over the years. But I wanted to ask you, I've got two memories from Mount Washington road race that I think stand out to me as probably two of the most sort of touching moments that I've ever witnessed in any, any sporting events. Number one was David McGilvery's start of the 2013 Mount Washington road race, which was right after the Boston Marathon, you know, I think it was like probably the first race that he had done. And, you know, he did a little speech about, um, you know, the race. And then we started that. And then the the next one was, I don't know what year it was, but it was George, um, I forget his last name, the older gentleman. Was, yeah, as well. he, it was his last finish. And I think that I was there and the crowd was cheering him on when he made it here. So those stand out to me. I didn't know if you, you know if you were involved in either one of those moments or if you had any other moments that you think of when you think of Mount Washington. Sure. Well, I've been at just about every one since, you know, since the year 2000. Um, I, I, I've run 10. I'm um, seeing George. He's hilarious. Uh, I remember when he was, uh, I think, 97. Uh, he said, well, my plan is to keep doing this until I'm 100, and then I'm going to drop dead when I cross the finish line at age 100. And people were laughing. You know, and he, he ran it um, 
in a legitimate time up until his last couple of years where it was starting to get a little scary whether he was going to make it to the top. But again, he was in his 90s. But, you know, for many years in his 80s and 90s, he was he was doing it in, you know, three hours, three and a half hours. Um, simply amazing. Um, that the, the funniest thing I remember him saying, well, I'm, I'm running it with my 72 year old son. And I just thought that was hysterical. Um, <laughs> but so he's de- he was definitely an inspiration for all the runners. Dave's um, Gilvery's talk at 2013 that was terrific. He did a similar talk at the Beach to Beacon Road race later in August. In, you know, in Maine, and I think uh, obviously all of us were impacted by uh, uh, 2013. But I, but I think. Um, yeah. it's such a unique race and the, you know, the chapter in the, in the book, chapter two really, really gets into it, but there's only been like eight human beings that have ever done it, you know, less than an hour. And, 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 and the only person in the book, Derek, who we didn't, we have not run with, and we put him in the book purposely for this reason. He was the first person that did it you know, under an hour. Um, and it's pretty amazing. And Joe Gray now has done it uh, under an hour several times. And this past June, June 17th, uh, won it for the seventh time, uh, which tied Bob Hodge and Kim Dobson for the most victories um, at, at Mount Washington. But it's just, it's just a cult. There are people that have done it for 40 years in a row. Uh, we call them the 300, the 300 Club because um, it's 7.6 miles. So if you've done it, you know, if you've done it, you know, 40 times, you, you've done 300 miles. And, wow. and so you just meet these people. And then you, then you, after the race, you are sitting under the tent at the bottom when you get back down. You're sitting with these elite athletes. So one person that I've befriended over the years is Jackie Garreau. Um, the, uh, she's from Montreal. She is the only woman who's won both Boston and the Mount Washington Road Race. Terrific lady. This year, she won it for the uh, uh, 70-year-old category, um, and she did it um, in like one hour and 50-so minutes, which for a 70-year-old is, for anybody, that's, you know, that's that's terrific. And just getting to know her um, over the years. So you get to know people, and it's like a, a cult in, 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 a, in a good way, and it's a big party afterwards. Um, once you get down and everybody says the same thing. Why am I doing this when you're in the middle of it? And then when they're done, they said, geez, I could have shaved off two minutes in my race. I'm coming back next year. Yeah. Oh, it's the same every year. You're like, all right, I think I'm done. And then, you know, the lottery comes around and, you know, I'll, I'll message Stomp and say, are we in? And he's like, yep, we're in. So, you know, you let fate <laughs> take, take, uh, take over at that point. Well, Stomp and Mike, if some year you don't get in, remember we're the major sponsor, so I can I can get you in there. So there's no excuses. Oh, Stomp, we got a con- we finally have a connection. This is <laughs> so exciting. Um, so so That's Tom, funny. the book. Um, one thing I'll say about the book is that so I was a hardcore runner in like the 2000s. I feel like there was a boom in like the mid 2000s, and it was so cool to read like some of the people you hi- like Jim Johnson is a guy that I used to follow before social media, and he had a blog 
blog and, you know, I was, I'd follow along with him religiously every day. I'd read a blog post from him. Um, so there was a bunch of subjects in there that I was familiar with their names, but there was also a lot of people that you highlighted that weren't like the elite runners. So I think you're full you and Ellen and and Erica's philosophy in writing this book, it sounded like is that you wanted to give a holistic view of people that are, you know, elite runners, but also some people that are just sort of, um, out there dedicated running. So can you talk a little bit about how you went about like deciding who you were going to interview and what stories you were going to pick for the book? Well put, Mike, that's exactly the way it is. We did, I mean, candidly, we did want to get people like Joan Benoit Samuels and, and Joni's become a good friend of mine over the years because of Beach to Beacon. Uh, she's also run Mount Washington, by the way. Um, and, and then people like Joseph Gray and Kim Dobson, uh, to give it a national flavor. So I wanted, you know, people beyond New Englanders to buy the book. But then all of the sort of local icons that are in New Hampshire, for example, David Audette, you know, one of 10 people um, in the United States that not only has run a marathon in all 50 states, but under three hours. So people like David, but then people pe- that people have never heard of, Dan Dodson, if you look at the chapter, The Joy of the Gift of Running, which is towards the end, there is, he doesn't look like a runner. He's kind of big, and but he's huge smile. And so we wanted to pepper the book with people the everyday people, you know, like me, that just do it for the for the joy and have no chance of, uh, you know, you know, ever winning a race. But we have a joy for running, and we had a technique, and um, people really, really opened up. So um, that's a that was one of our other goals too, is to get people to talk about something that maybe people didn't realize. So in the case of Joan Benoit Samuelson, it was she only got into running because she was a skier, broke her leg in high school. And in rehabbing, found out she had a gift for running. Um, other other people, you mentioned Jimmy Johnson. Well, people didn't realize, um, you know, the significant uh, health issues that he, he's had you know, more recently. You know, he dominated um, the sport for, like you said, you know, for about 10 years. But then he's had some significant health issues. So he's, he's, revealed, he's revealed those. Kristen Dineski, who is in her early 50s and has dominated um, a lot of the races for masters well she talked about how menopause affected you know her running so people revealed themselves i had another gentleman wayne robinson who had prostate cancer and how he used running to uh, overcome that Um, there's another runner beth conley she runs literally almost a marathon every weekend but she doesn't with good times, you know, like three hours, she doesn't look like a runner. She she's kind of, you know, stocky. Um, and how over the years, I mean, she's you know, she was at a race where, uh, you know, she was completing completed her second loop, but because of the way she's built, they thought that she hadn't done the second loop yet, and how that made her feel. And so all of those sort of stories, you know, from the heart. Uh, Another great runner, Heather Searles, the only national champion from the community college here, NHGI. She literally won a national championship. How running uh, turned her around. She was going no place and then running turned her around. But as she now is getting close to, uh, she's in her 30s, she had this rare foot 
disorder. So now she can't, she can't really, you know, run fast again ever, but she still enjoys it. So everybody, we got them to reveal something about themselves, um, which I think is uh, why people, people are telling me as they're reading the book that once they start, particularly if they're a New Englander, because they know so many of the people, they can't, um, they can't put it down. And the other thing that I really enjoyed seeing is as I go to road races, People are bringing their book to road races, and they're getting people who are in the book to uh, you know to sign it. Oh, that's yeah, neat. Yeah, it really is a love story for yeah. you know New England running, Northern New England running, and it's I, I don't know. It's I was in that world for a long time, and sort of everybody was familiar to me. But I do think that even people that aren't in that world would be interested in reading the stories for sure. Um, I think so. It's, and there was a Amazon testimonial where the I'm not sure who it was, but he said, I'm not, I'm not a runner, but I, you know, I enjoyed the inspirational stories, including the very last anecdote in the book where Joseph Gray talks about, you know, he, he went on a training run and, uh, and nearly died. Uh, but as he, as he was going on the training run, he had a, a fight with his wife and, uh, but off he went to do his training run and he was sliding down the mountain into a ravine and, thought he sure, surely he was going to die he, you know maybe this all took like five seconds and as that was happening um he was saying oh my god i'm going to leave this world having had a fight with my wife and uh, totally transformed and so ultimately when he was saved somehow a tree stopped him from being killed um he said you know like i'm really going to change how i view life and try to you know keep the positivity so we we end we end the book you know with that transformational story and that was told to us he he did the the loon race not this year but last year and as we were driving him back to uh logan airport he was telling us the story and like it was getting like i was getting shivers in the back of my neck him telling me the story but he i had him speak to our employees uh, he was back he did the cog this year um this year he didn't beat the train last year he did christina right um, he, we'll make sure he beats it again next year. We're going to play. I didn't know that the engine. I didn't know how competitive the engineers were. We didn't until we got to the no top. No kidding. Yeah, so, <laughs> they, uh, but uh, but Joseph, uh, he's this year. He when he when he completed the Mount Washington, he stayed up with us for a week and then did, did the cog. So I had to, I had him, uh, you know, speak to our employees about you know diversity, equity, inclusion, and. How he's been using his voice um, for that. There aren't that many African American trail runners, for example, and so how he's how he's used his voice for that. But he told my employees, you know, this story, and there was you could hear a pin drop, you know, you know with that. So so you you meet these really cool people there, and then there are people no one's ever heard of. Uh, um, when, when we interviewed uh, Dan Dotson, and we interviewed him because he was a friend of David Ardette, who I explained, you know, was a terrific marathoner. Um, Dan goes, well, you gotta, you, you've got to interview this other woman, Judy Garcia. Well, no one's ever heard of her. So we interviewed her, um, and she's done a, a marathon in all 50 states as well. But a lot of the feedback that I'm getting from um, people that have read the book like they go like I've never heard like they've heard of Joan and Joe and all that, but I've never heard of Judy. But like her story was terrific, so I think we can all relate to this. You know, I'm 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 just a plugger. I used to be half decent. Now I'm like a turtle. Um, but 
but everybody can relate to it. You're in the middle of a race, and whether you're fast like Christina, you're still in the middle of a race. Like, why am I doing this? And then when you finish, you're so glad you did. And every you know runner, whether you do a you know a 17 minute 5K or a 35 minute 5K, you know you're feeling that. And I think that's the other thing what we wanted to have people feel is that. You know, anybody can put on sneakers and shorts, and we all have this kind of same self-doubt in the middle of the race, but the same euphoria, you know, at the end of the race. Yeah, and I think that there's a there's a community thing that goes on when you're doing, you know, running, hiking, whatever it is for an outdoor activity. I, I think that there's a there's a I don't think it's always so healthy that people are finding communities online exclusively. I think you do need to be out there. And I think the running community, like, I don't think, you know, I I remember being so involved in it and I didn't know, you know, I don't know all the details about people's backgrounds or, you know, how they think about certain things, but we all had running in common. And I think running goes through these booms and bus cycles over time. And I know that there was a big boom in the mid 2000s. And, you know, there's been a couple of booms that have gone through there. But I do think that if somebody's looking for a community and they want to join, like hiking's great. Obviously, we talk about that all the time, but running is another great option. Trail running is, you know, very similar to hiking in that respect. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things, one of the responsibilities I feel that we have as race sponsors is to get the younger crowd interested. So we now, in many of our races, we always have a kid's component. Sometimes they're really short. Sometimes, you know, they may be a mile, sometimes much shorter, but more and more families are now showing up with their kids because, you know, we want to get the next generation of runners. And I've been in the circuit, you know, for 25 years. So like, like Tim Cox, who's a, a great coach, he's got, he's got kids that are like nationally ranked. And I remember when they were like three or four years old, you know, and now they're in college. So it's great for me to see kind of little kids that used to just show up and watch and do the kids race. You know, they're, you know, they're now, you know, terrific, you know, athletes in their own right. You know, and, and hiking, we added a little component in this book about hikers because Bill Tidd, who was an excellent runner, but also hiker, his, his goal was to um, break the record for um, doing the, you know, the 4,000 footers. And I think he did it in, uh, um, three, three days. It's all, it's all documented. We put it, we put it in the book. Um, and a lot of people have been really intrigued about that, how he managed, you know, you know, to do that and how he ran, ran with his kids, you know, to help him, you know, accomplish that. So, so definitely we also wanted to, you know, give a shout out to, you know, to the amazing hikers that are out there. Yeah, and I think one thing I wanted to ask you too, Tom, was that like sort of interwoven into the various stories was, you know, it's it was like a recurring theme is that you'd have a race that was, uh, you know, needed help either through sponsorship or timing services or volunteers. So you talk about Millennium Running and you talk about Granite State Race Service uh, Race Services. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of the people behind the scenes that have helped to maintain races or groom races over the years? Sure. So one of the things. I've learned, particularly for the smaller community races, is that uh, you've got to get them sort of institutionalized, uh, or they'll they'll fritter away. So what we try to do is uh, be the sponsor for the timing services, and let's say if they want T-shirts, and then so the the race director can focus, you know, on the logistics, you know, of, of the race. Um, so the other thing that we've done too is actually taken over and done some races where we we 
you know, we pay for everything. And so the registration fees go directly um, to, to the charity. So it, it has to, you have to sustain it. And so the fact that we're blessed in New Hampshire, we have, you know, you know, we have Chris, Christina's company, and then we have the Grand State Services, Millennium Running. We have running companies that um, those of us, and I have run races all across the country. The races in New Hampshire, top of the line in terms of how they're professionally you know, managed. And the one shout out I do want to give to Millennium Running is that when at the height of COVID, when basically the whole world stopped running in terms of races, John Mortimer and I uh, worked together to continue racing in New Hampshire. So what he did was developed kind of the uh, racing protocols during COVID, which is imagine you're getting onto a Southwest airline flight and you know how you're, you're, you're set up and uh, you're five feet behind someone. Well, anyway, we, we set up these racing guidelines, um, you know, with stage starts. So everybody had their own start. So, so racing continued on in New Hampshire. There was maybe a couple months where nothing happened, but we got the governor's uh, group to agree on the on the racing protocols, um, and it was really cool for a year or two because everybody you know had their own start. There was a starting mat, so you had the legitimate time. People people loved it because it would they would say you know you know person X off and running and then 10 seconds later the next person and you know and you would you would you would be wearing a mask right off until you you take off so um, we're blessed that you know that we have um, you know people running companies in New Hampshire that are, are keeping it state of the art but also with the community flavor um, you know Millennium do- donates a lot you know to uh, to charities and there's another gentleman uh, Steve Delahunte who was at Christina's race who um, has this technology you know with the jumbotron so as people were you know making it to the top of the cog um, at the bottom we were seeing the results it was really really cool so we, we, we are blessed in New Hampshire that we have a one a disproportionate amount of elite athletes like Christina but also um, organizations, you know, that support it. And, um, and, you know, as, as famous race announcer, Andy Shattuck once said, he was glad that I got into running, not bowling, but, but, but I'm also, uh, I'm glad that my board of directors, they, uh, most people, Christina knows this, right? Like most people call me good crazy. So my board knows that this is important for, uh, you know, for population health. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, I did, I miss the popsicle stick days, but I do appreciate the new technology for sure. <laughs> and I started with the first race I ever ran in the mass yard, and it's written in the book. Uh, there were popsicle sticks, um, and uh, and then it's certainly and that was kind of quaint, but obviously, you know, it it it's 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 evolved, and I think uh, you know, I still I still hope that. You know these smaller community races. Um, some of them did go away during COVID. Um, others, what we've tried to do, as I mentioned earlier, is if you if you attach it to in a, a series like this, the the eight races that are in the Capital Air Race Series, most of them are small community races, probably on their own, couldn't exist. But with 
us with Delta Dental being the presenting sponsor, you know, we can keep all races together because you still need energetic uh, race director, but you also need, you know, the financial sponsorship. Excellent. And Stomp, you got some questions here? I've been, I've been monopolizing this. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, I have two two brief questions, and I think I'll start with uh, Christina. Um, you've worked with Forest Service quite a bit and Fishing Game, and um, I love how you educate your runners as to how to be prepared. Um, the podcast has a pretty sizable number of trail runners, power hikers, and runners, and I was wondering if you could just give your take on how to do these sports safely, uh, particularly above tree line? So weather, absolutely check the weather. Um, just because you're a trail runner, a mountain runner, uh, you might see people running around with little packs. Um, make sure you have the right stuff in your pack. I do have an informational video that is pretty cool. It shows you everything I carry and um, the difference between what I used to carry as a hiker and what I carry as a trail runner now, more so mountain runner is mm. I'm not going to die in the woods over the overnight. I'm just not going to have a comfortable night, but I'm not going to die. And that's the difference between what I used to carry as a hiker and what I now carry as a trail runner. But I've got extra food filters, you know, emergency kits, bivy sack, puffy. I mean, you can pack a lot of stuff in the pack and carrying extra weight is great training. But I mean, you hear me at the races always harping on get your hike safe card, know where to check the weather forecast, turn around if you have to take courses. I've kind of partnered with Redline Guiding and um, offer some clinics to teach people about mountain weather, mountain safety, how to move safely in the mountains. So, you know, you can always head over and take some classes with them. Um, Redline Guiding is really cool because they will create a course specific to your needs. And, you know, we also donate money to Fish and Game, Jigger Johnson. Um, They're the ones that receive a bunch of money from us because we really appreciate everything that they do and they're severely underfunded. So just working closely with the people and, you know, all the search and rescue groups. And I mean, we see it every single day. You guys are out there doing a lot every day. Mm -hmm. And I guess they need um, horse safe cards now. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bad week for horse. (laughs) (laughs) Horse. That's a good one. That's going to get the old butt up bump for sure. Wow. I didn't even say that. <laughs> Maybe we have a horse division next year. I mean, <laughs> will the horse service allow that? <laughs> Race the horses. Well, you know, horses also need dental health as well. Yeah, I mean, so Don't, don't look like, a gift horse in the mouth, though. <laughs> but a thing, but a boom, right? Oh, boy. Oh, that's great. Now, Tom, for you, I have a two-parter. Does Delta sponsor um, any winter snowshoe races? I know like one of my heroes, Dave Dunham, was big into that during the off-season. So is uh, Delta involved? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's another example of uh, having a notepad doing dinner with my wife, Ellen, because... She, when she uh, when she returned to New Hampshire, she got involved with a lot of the snowshoe races with uh, Chris J. Dunn, and and uh, and I I had done some of them. But what happened in the last uh, few years was uh, with the weather being not so good in terms of the the amount of snow, a lot of snowshoe races were canceled, and it was frustrating 
you know, for snowshoers because you would plan, okay, I had the snowshoe race and then, and because of a lack of snow, Chris would have to cancel the race. So the snowshoe series kind of dwindled a little bit. So, um, Ellen and Tom Walton, who I've referenced, had this brilliant idea. They called it Snow or No, We Go. So we set up the races, um, and if there's not enough snow, the race still goes on, but you're wearing spikes instead of snowshoes. And so so we have sponsored that series for the last two years, and it's totally – and it's totally brought back um, the series. We have uh, some of the races are at, at Canterbury Shaker Village, um, and, the, and there are other venues, you know, that uh, where they occur. And there's like seven or eight races, um, and they always take place. Um, and ironically, you know, 99% of the time there, there's been enough snow for uh, snowshoes, all but one. But the big thing is, it's given the certainty. Um, to the athletes that there's going to be a race. It sounds so simple, right. but it was elegant. So we call it the Delta Dental Snow or No We Go series, and that will continue again you know, this winter. <laughs> I love it. That's great. And then my last question here is, um, when are we going to see Kiwi Jonathan Wyatt's 56-minute, what, 16-second record be broken? <laughs> Great question. I've asked Joseph this a lot. So, um, um, so he's broke this year, actually, uh, because of the way the wind was, he actually was slightly over an hour. Um, but he has broken it several times. It's going to, it, it really depends on, on two things, the weather, um, and the competition right. as Joseph, he, he is so scientific. So I mentioned the first year he, beat the cog on Christina's race. Well, he had that mapped out. He said, you know, the, he, you know, he knows that it would take, you know, X amount of minutes, whatever, you know, 42 minutes for the train to get to the top and he can do it in 41 minutes. So he knew he was going to beat the train. So the same thing with Mount Washington, but, but depending on who shows up, sometimes as he says, he has to race the competition to make sure he wins the race um, and then other times, right. you know, he knows he's going to win so that he can kind of go for a time. So I think it's going to be a combination of that year when there is perfect weather um, and also where he can just focus on his time and not the competition. But um, it, it, may, it may take a while. And, and as mentioned, you know, only eight people have ever done it. So doing it under an hour is is amazing and still is so when when derek first did it many years ago um we thought and that's why we included derek for it in the in the book he's the only one we have actually haven't run against because it was so terrific um but in any event i do think it will be broken but it will be you know weather well weather dependent and joe's still only like 39 so he's got a few good years left in him to uh you know to make it happen well, great answer. Thank you very much. Wow. Well, Tom, Christina, we thank you so much. So, Tom, the book is called Stories from the Starting Line, um, and it's Tom Raffio, Ellen Raffio, and Erica Allison Cohen that are the, the co-writers of this book. And how can we purchase this? The easiest way to do it is, is on Amazon, and the Amazon truck will 
drive up your driveway in two days. <laughs> However, if you are, I always prefer local buying for a lot of reasons. So if you're in the Concord, New Hampshire area, it's at Gibson's. And if you're in southern New Hampshire, um, it's it, it's at the Bookery. Um, if those places aren't convenient, you just go on Amazon and click it. Um, and all. And I just want to make this point. All of the money goes to two charities. One, Oral Health for the underserved population, um, as well as the Tom Walton Scholarship Fund. Tom, who I've referenced, um, our corporate trainer and great athlete, holds many records, died unexpectedly. So we've created a scholarship fund at the local community college. So whether you buy it at Gibson's or the Bookery or on Amazon, all the proceeds go to those two charities. Excellent. And then, Christina, Great. you have the Jigger Johnson race coming up and you have the Kilkenny Ridge race coming up. So we want people to sign up for those races. And then you're also open to, you know, if anybody wants to volunteer to help out as well, we'll put all the information in our show notes about that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We want those volunteers. I want to give a shout out. Christina is also an author. She wrote a beautiful book with her sort of other hat on about dental needing a reboot. And that'll be a subject for another show. So she's also an author that you can get on uh, Amazon. Thanks to Tom who helped me with it. And a hundred percent of the proceeds from that book also go to his oral health initiative. Wow. Great. Excellent. Excellent. And Tom, I think the next thing we just got to figure out and we'll let you go, but like we got to get you out hiking. You know, we got to take some of the, uh, you got a hundred percent of the energy on running. If we can get 20% of that energy on hiking and get you out there, like we may create another monster. I think, I think I'm heading that direction because I've become so slow and also in interviewing Bill Tid, how impressed I've been with his hike. I don't want to do it the way he did it, you know, doing all 4,000 in like three days, but I definitely, uh, want to do some hiking for sure so i'll, I'll be out there don't worry but, but, but i want to watch christina's video first yes yeah well you have some experts here but can you imagine stomp the the pemi loop sponsored by northeast delta dental i love it <laughs> oh you we're lots to dodge even yeah you're tempting me get Yes, yes. So. <laughs> Lots of potential. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was right. this has been fun, and uh, hopefully we'll have you both back again soon. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. All right, Stomp, what do you think? Very interesting uh, pair there. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, just the history that um, Tom brings and have, having been involved in all these mountain races for so many years and knowing all the runners and um, he's a vital part. And uh, as is Christina, just in this community, they're uh, titans in the world of mountain running, shall I say. Yes, yes. It takes Exciting. me back to my, my early days when I was much more hardcore into running and not yeah. so much into hiking. And, you know, I, I think I got to get back and do some do some races. Yeah, it's great to support them, and uh, we're excited for all the things that they're working on. Yeah, yeah. So we'll keep everyone updated on the latest with the uh, the race community here in uh, Northern New England, and you know, hopefully, we'll get them back on again for updates in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right on. Uh, 
All right, stop. So before we get into recent search and rescue news, um, I did want to cover the presidential traverse, just give my perspective on it. I've never done it before. Give some tips. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, an article that came out uh, talking about the, um, you know, like we talked about in 2022, the Mount Washington road race got cut short. The day, I think it was the day of the race or the day after the race, um, Jesse Chen had passed away um, while doing a presidential traverse. I want to talk about that article. Uh, but first, from my own experience with the presidential traverse, Tom, so I've done all these peaks. I've been all over like sections of the presidentials, but I had never strung them all together to do a traverse. Yeah. I had sort of done a training run to um, to grab Madison and Adams the weekend before just to fill out my time. The original plan was me and my sister-in-law were like, we can go after the FKT for the supported mixed gender FKT because it was a group that posted a time like maybe about a month or two ago. And the guy that posted the time was kind of like, look, we don't know, we know that we're not the fastest and that this will be broken, but we needed to get something up on the board because no one had ever submitted. So I was like, we can definitely break this. My sister-in-law, Marissa, was like, we can break this. Unfortunately, what happened with Marissa is that she ran into some hip issues when we were, um, on the route. So she started slowing down around the time she was coming down Madison. And then, you know, by the time we got to Jefferson, she had really slowed down, but, um, but I'll get to that in a minute, but just starting off, like from my perspective, we started at four in the morning. So we started with headlamps. I think most people that are going to do a presidential traverse are going to be on average somewhere between eight to 14 hours doing this, depending on your pace. And then, um, so I think you do want to probably start um, pretty early. You got to keep an eye on the weather. We were originally planning on hiking this on Saturday. The weather report had indicated there was going to be some afternoon thunderstorms. So we just bailed out and said, we're going to go Sunday. The Mount Washington Observatory Higher Summit forecast said Sunday was going to be clear. Was perfect weather. Weather was like a little cloudy, but for the most part, clear the whole way. from a water perspective, we carried a liter each. So um, I had a liter of water. I hydrated before, and then I had a liter of water up to Madison. And then when we got to the hut, I drank again, re-upped, got another liter, which took us from Madison Hut over Adams to Jefferson. And then from there, I had my brother meet me on Jefferson. And at that point, that's when my sister-in-law, Marissa, tapped out. Were you uh, supplementing with like electrolytes and stuff or just chugging water? I had one, um, one, I had the two soft bottles. I had one soft bottle that was Gatorade and then the other was water. And then I drank half the Gatorade. And um, then when I filled up at, um, Madison hut, I had like a, it was like 50% Gatorade and 50% water. Okay, cool. So, um, but I think that if you're going to do this and you don't have somebody meeting you at Jefferson, you're probably on a hot day. You're going to need like a liter and a half to two liters to get up to Mount Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you could probably get away with a liter if you really hydrated at Madison, you could probably get away with a liter, but um, you'd have to make the decision on what you're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the views were spectacular early morning on Madison. The wind was like maybe 25, 30 miles an hour. And then it calmed down. Adams was maybe like 15 to 20. And then from there, there was no wind the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
for me, surprisingly, the so we got to Jefferson. Um, I saw a couple of listeners were talking to them on the way up. Marissa was way behind me at that point. So I kind of knew she was going to bail out because I was like, the, she, if, if she continues on at this pace, like we wouldn't get done until like seven o'clock at night or something. And I knew that she wasn't going to want to go that long. So I wasn't surprised when she, when she tapped out, but I didn't say anything. I was kind of like, let her make her own decision. Mm-hmm. And um, when she got to Jefferson, she was just like, I'm not feeling it. So they went down and then agreed to just meet me because I was like, I'm going to continue on because I want to finish. Um, over Clay, I actually thought that over Clay was the most enjoyable part is that, that trip. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. If you, if you went over it, because does that like officially count? You have to go over that one. Yeah. I think that's the official route. I think honestly, like I think we screwed the route up in the very beginning because I went up Valley way to the hut and then, out and back on Madison. And I think you're supposed to like take that other route up to Madison and then come around. I, I have to look at the official route. So I, we may have screwed up anyway. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, went over clay. I thought that that was the nicest part because there was nobody around. It was just me the whole time for mm. that like mile and a half, two mile section. Gotcha. Um, and then once I got to like the intersection of the jewel trail, up to Washington, it was a straight zoo the whole rest of the way. Like people everywhere from all the way from that cog intersection all the way down to Mount Pierce was just nonstop people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I started cruising. I was doing like probably at least two miles an hour from uh, Jefferson all the way over to, I think I ended up clearing that section from Jefferson over to Crawford in about five hours or so. So total was around 10 and a half, 11 hours, I think, but yeah. it was slow going in the Northern Prezies and then started moving quicker. Uh, just the terrain's a lot easier on the second half. Absolutely. It's like a super highway. Yeah, exactly. But it was basically for my water. Again, it was like a liter up to Madison, a liter from the, the hut to Jefferson, a liter, which I didn't even need from Jefferson to Washington, then another half a liter on Washington, filled up again at Lakes of the Cloud with a liter, and then I was done. I used that through Crawford. So Mm. the water situation is not hard at all to manage. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I would say like, I'm definitely kind of done with the presidentials at this point. Like I didn't like the crowds. I was like, hi, how you doing? I'm so sick of saying hi to everyone. And I'm definitely looking forward to getting over to like Evans Notch and stuff. It's a zoo up there. It is just so crowded on the weekends. And yeah, yeah, I wasn't loving it by the end. So dude, tell me a little bit more about the Southern aspect of it. Did you, where did you bail out or finish? I finished in, uh, so I went uh, across from, I went down Crawford Path. I went yeah. up Monroe, Little Monroe, and then across Mount Franklin to Eisenhower. Gotcha. And then Eisenhower to Pierce, summited Pierce, and then came down Crawford Path and ended up coming out on that um, parking lot where Mount Clinton Road is. So gotcha. the main lot to Crawford gotcha. Path. So. so that's the official path? Yeah, for the I mean, presidential. Okay, you don't hit Jackson at the end? No, no Jackson Webster. You can do that as an extended, but that's not, I don't believe that that's part of the official presidential traverse like FKT. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah. gotcha. Interesting. Because I was going to ask about that stretch between Mitzvah and Jackson, which I hear is pretty notorious at times. Yeah, that's a muddy section. I've done that um, a bunch of times and yeah, it's it's just muddy, but there's some bog bridges there, so it's not, not horrible. 
Hmm. Okay. Wow. Well, congrats. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bucket list thing, but I like, I'll, I just tell people like, it's just pack your patience because especially if you're a solo hiker that likes to be alone, like there wasn't a moment from the time I hit Mount Washington to the time I got to Pierce where there wasn't like multiple people crossing and it's like, you know, excuse me, pardon letting me. people excuse go. Me. And yeah. I, and I'm always like, I try to be polite. So I'm like, Hey, how you doing? And I did run into some other listeners and stuff. It's cool. Uh, but it's just not my preference. I'd rather not add to the crowd. I'd rather be in a place where I'm not going to see as many people in the future. So I'm going to go back to Evans notch. Yeah. Yeah. I agreed. Yeah. Um, but I also like before I did this hike stomp, there's an article that came out in, um, um, it's the new England.com from the editors of Yankee magazine. And, it's called Trouble on Mount Washington, a missing hiker, a dangerous rescue, and what came next. And um, I, remember I know we've talked a lot about uh, Emily Satello, and I think I've, I've heard this being brought up a few times by people that have said, like, you know, why is it that certain rescues get more attention than others or certain fatalities get more attention than others? And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about Emily, and I think part of the reason is this sort of the extended amount of time that um, it took to do that search and the fact that she was so young and, you know, people have raised this issue, though, you know, what about the guy that passed away during the presidential traverse? No one talks about him. So um, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time to talk about Jesse Chen, who passed away on June 17th of last year. Um, Or actually, I think it was June 18th. I apologize. Um, So this, this, this news article is uh it's pretty detailed but i want to just read the first couple of paragraphs and then we can talk a little bit about sort of what exactly happened here but um on june 17th of last year a little before nine in the morning z jesse chen texted his neighbor and longtime friend dennis Gu about his weekend plans a quiet reserved man chen wasn't one for bragging but the 53 year old industrial engineer had reason to feel excited about the upcoming three days an experienced hiker who had done extensive wilderness treks in Iceland and parts of Europe, Chen was most at home in New England's White Mountains, where he had begun exploring after moving to Massachusetts in the late 90s. Over the previous decade, especially, Chen had devoted many weekends to venturing north from his family's home in Andover, sometimes with his wife and three children, but most often with his teenage son, Kai Wen, who had the vim and vigor needed to complete the strenuous multi-day climbs his father preferred. A patient observer who hiked with his camera always at the ready, Chen relished the chance to find secluded spots of beauty that he could share with others. As he did, Chen gave himself permission to let the work pressures that often draped over him fall away. He definitely seemed lighter when he was on those hikes, said Kaiwen. Even just waking up and having a cup of instant coffee, he'd really appreciated it. Was the only ins- it was only instant coffee, but it was where he was. He was away from these other worries he might have had. Hiking became central to Chen's life even when he wasn't on the trail. A devoted follower of the popular outdoor YouTuber Craig Adams, he obsessed over finding the newest, lightest camping gear and kept a rolling list on his on his phone of the hikes he wanted to accomplish, including Mount Kilimanjaro. He also set a personal goal of climbing all 48 of, white, of the White Mountains 4,000 footers by 2025. 
On a wall in his kitchen, Chen even hung a map of those peaks with color-coded pins for the ones he completed and the people he'd climbed with. By last June, he had already ticked off 21 of the climbs. Now, as he geared up for another trip to New Hampshire, he planned to knock off a few more. Chen had his sights set on the Presidential Traverse, a rugged 20-mile journey that crosses seven 4,000-foot peaks, all named after U.S. presidents. One of the more storied routes in the Whites, the Presidential Traverse courses from peak to peak, taking hikers high above the tree line and rewarding them with views that extend deep across far northern New England. But at the same time, the train offers no relief from the elements, and the weather can be ugly in an instance. Among serious White Mountain hikers, conquering the Traverse is a badge of honor. So... It goes on to talk about how Chen had scheduled the climb for Father's Day weekend. He was hoping that his son, who was a junior at Worcester Poly Tech Institute, could join him, but his son couldn't free up the schedule, so Chen decided to go solo. Um, so he texted a photo of his pack to his friend, um, who was mentioned in the beginning of the article. So he was pretty excited. So his plan was he went up Valley Way, stayed at the Valley Way tent site that evening, and then made his way... Um, Across, And it was the day that that weather came in that was significantly, um, you know, cold and windy. So, but I mean, just reading through this, I mean, this guy is me. I mean, everything about him is like, you know, his obsession over hiking, the love of gear, the list pursuits, you know, the research, all the stuff. And he just, unfortunately, well, you know, he was, he was going from Valley Way to Lake of the Clouds Hut and unfortunately, he just didn't uh, didn't make it. So he was near the summit of Mount Clay. Um, right. He had texted his wife a couple of times, and you know, had said to his wife that he you know, he wasn't uh, wasn't doing that great, and that uh, he might be in trouble. And unfortunately, you know, he, the his wife was like, you know, got that text because he said he's a bit concerned about hypothermia and he said, keep an eye on my location. And then um, he said, you know, keep an eye on my movement. He said, if I stop moving, then I'm in trouble. Eventually his wife decided to call. They headed up north, you know, rescue operation, you know, ended up getting executed and, you know, they found him alive. But unfortunately, by the time they got into the hospital, you know, it was too it was too far um, gone. His core temperature was down to in the 60 degrees. So um, there's a lot of talk about like some of the people on the rescue team in the article and sort of a lot of perspective about how dangerous this hike is. So, um, you know, everything about this, this gentleman is like, he was one of us, definitely a hiker through and through. And I don't think that a lot of people spent a lot of time sort of getting to know his story. And hopefully just by sharing a little bit about him, you know, we, we share this story and I'll certainly link this in the show notes and on our social media, but, Mm. um, you know, shout out to his family and our thoughts and prayers. And, you know, I'm glad that they took the time to speak with this writer and, and, and tell their story. Yeah. I have memories of this because we were on a mission, uh, in Gorham, uh, basically the, the southern end of the Mahusik's Mariah area. And when we were nearing the exit of that mission, several uh, conservation officers and uh, members of AFSAR and other teams um, were diverted to this. And I'll never forget it because it was a mo- 
the whole mission was just monsoon rain, but you saw the images on uh, MUR, Channel 9, and other places of the snowy conditions up above, and it's just such a different world up there in June. And it's just a really important reminder that uh, the weather up there can be so dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, it is tough. And the article closes here and it says like he had told his daughter that when he died he hoped to be buried by a tree so last fall as the family visited a nearby cemetery they came across a pretty little spot that sits a bit off on his own is slightly shaded by a red maple so it was like that plot found them said uh uh, said the daughter. So later uh, this year, it'll become his resting place, a little spot that's drenched in sunshine and fresh air, the kind of place he always relished finding. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, tough story, sad story, but I was sort of, I had read this article, the I think the day before, and I was just sort of thinking about walking in his steps and, you know, how wonderful of a day it was, but also how quickly it can turn when you're up there. Right, right. Did you think about that when you uh, approached the whole clay area? Because that's sort of the the area where, quote-unquote, John was during the Infinite Storm story. Did you think about that at all? That's another I spot did, that yeah. I always think about. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, uh, you know, as you approach like... Starlight. As you go past clay, yeah, as you as you go past clay and you approach the junction where you get close to the Cog Railroad, I mean you're really at the precipice of the Great Gulf and looking mm. down there. But um it's it, I feel like it's not because there's a bypass there where you can go to Jefferson from the Jewel Trail. Um so I feel like it's not as traveled yeah. as other sections because I feel like a lot of people probably do that bypass and they don't go over clay as, as frequently. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, Cape Matrasova, you know, Star Lake, Mount Adams. Whenever I go through there, I think about these similar topics. Uh, I guess in a sense, that's a good thing because it's imprinted on your mind and it will hopefully, you know, remind you, this is what I need to do before I go out. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little morbid sometimes, but yeah, it's yeah. like I go up to that section um, on Lafayette where that 90-degree turn is, and I think about yeah. Emily, and I think about those trail runners that you know got rescued yeah. by a helicopter, and I sort of just, and I think about my own experience on there where I was sort of in a whiteout condition and finding my way around in the, you know, with no visibility and how dangerous it is. So mm-hmm. um, that's why I think we do the shows that, people, you know, to get people to think about this stuff so that they're not thinking about it for the first time when they're out there. Yeah, for sure. All right, Stomp. So uh, we got a sponsor to, to hit here. Yes, yeah, Seek the Peak returned this summer with their classic Mount Washington hikeathon. This annual gathering of New Hampshire's hiking community is the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory's largest annual fundraiser. Hikers raise funds, earn gear, and celebrate at their Apre hike party with live music, food trucks, epic gear raffle, beer garden, vendors, and people who care deeply about the trails and an inclusive hiking community. It all takes place at the base of the Mount Washington Auto Road. Our hike and make friends option supports all ability levels, pairing hikers with similar goals for a trek that's right for you. So all hikers are welcome to help raise funds for the observatory's summit weather station and services like the twice a day higher summits forecast. 
highlighted here on Slasher, by the way. Uh, educational programs and research in the White Mountains. Seek the Peak is sponsored by Great Glen Trails and Eastern Mountain Sports. So for next year, learn more and register to hike at seekthepeak.org. search and rescue news our first story is out of california good samaritan uh, mountain biker and his friend stopped to um aid four hikers who were without food or water this is around the san diego area um the death and and unfortunately one of these these mountain bikers ended up passing away um in record shattering temperatures um where pockets of, I guess, unprecedented atmospheric heat are smothering tens of millions of people, apparently. Um, so this ordeal happened around 2.45 when mountain bikers called for help after encountering four hikers in the Carrizo Gorge area near Dianza Springs. They said it was 106 degrees when firefighters arrived at the scene. A Cal Fire helicopter crew hoisted the four hikers to safety uh, medical personnel checked all four of them and treated them at the scene, but none required hospitalization. After the helicopter rescue, the two mountain bikers who stayed with the hikers began riding back to the trailhead. They became separated along the way, and only one of them made it back. Wow. When the other bikers set out to search for the missing, so they're they're biking. They come across these hikers. They help with a rescue. Then they head out, and fortunately, one of them got separated. Uh, when the other bikers set out to search for the missing man, they found him unconscious about a quarter mile away. They carried him up the trail and placed him in an air-conditioned pickup until an ambulance arrived, but paramedics and firefighters were unable to revive the stricken rider. Yeah. So he passed away at 545. Like a like a quarter mile away from the rest of his team. Yeah. Yeah. So Awful. Um, sad story. Matter of fact, this reminds me, Stomp, I didn't tell you this story, but um, a friend of mine from high school actually passed away um, hiking in California about uh, two, three months ago, a uh, guy I went to high school with that I was reasonably good friends with. He was good friends with my brother. Um, unfortunately, had a medical issue and, um, you know, passed away. And, uh, you know, early 50s guy, same age as me. Mm-hmm. And um, we went over to the celebration of life probably two months ago in North Reading. And, you know, it was just a medical incident. So it's scary stuff out there, but California's definitely got some crazy heat. So you got to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hey, do you monitor your, uh, your heart rate when you're out there? I don't monitor my heart rate when I'm out there, but I monitor my heart rate um, every day to see what my resting heart rate is. And then I'll look at my exercise to see if I'm spiking or anything like that. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's curious. Yeah, so then uh, moving on to local stuff here, Stomp, um, we've got, one thing I will say, actually, before I move on to local, one thing I will say is when I went on that diet for the last four months, yeah. my resting heart rate dropped by about six points. Makes so, sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think Well, you were running pounds. harder, too, so your heart was stronger, so it doesn't have to pump as hard. Correct, correct, yeah. yeah. So, but I definitely saw the impact there, and it's it stayed down pretty much. I mean, it's, it bumped up, like, maybe a point or two, but mostly it's... It's mostly down, but gotcha. um, 
All right, so two local rescues here, Stomp. So um, on Saturday, July 22nd, New Hampshire Fishing Game was made aware of a Garmin in-reach activation on the old bridle path in Franconia. So uh, there was little information to go on, but the activation was followed up with a call to New Hampshire 911. 67-year-old female had injured her lower leg descending Mount Lafayette. Uh, Pemi Valley Search and Rescue conservation officers responded to the injured hiker around 1 a.m. So the call came in around 11. They got to the hiker at 1 a.m., about a mile and a half from the trailhead. The injured hikers, the injured hiker's injury was stabilized. She was placed into a rescue litter for carryout, and they got her to the trailhead around 3 a.m. on June. Second, the hiker was a lady from Pennsylvania, and she'd been on a day hike with other family members to the summit. She got a short distance from the summit, and she slipped on rocks as she descended down the mountain around 2 p.m. Family members aided her down the trail, reaching the Greenleaf Hut just before 5. The staff at the hut provided care, and her family um, decided to descend Old Bridal without placing a call for help. So kudos to them for giving it a shot. At around 11.15, the group had only covered half the descent and were all exhausted and unable to continue. So they activated the Garmin in reach and a family member at the trail had followed up with a call at 911. So can, can they were prepared do, and made every attempt they could. So yeah. kudos to them. Do the math on that. So that's somebody that is just below the summit, according to this, at 1? When did... Uh when did that wait wait 1 a.m um two o'clock she injured herself and then got to the summit at five at got, oh, got to, to got to Greenleaf. Got, got to the hut at five sorry right and then rescuers reached her when at a ele- so she was staying at the hut for a little while um but they decided to leave they were like we're not going to stay here let's just try to get down yeah. so around 11 p.m is when they finally you know they had only made it halfway from the hut to the trailhead which is a good distance. Yeah. Um, and they finally just, it's with a, a mile and a half left, they were like, we get a call for a rescue. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of time. I mean, just hobbling down. Holy moly. Yeah. You know, I'd like to think like, you know, they would run into some other hikers that may be able to help out or like, that's why like having like a, a, a splint or something would be, I don't know. I wonder if the AMC huts have splints at, at the hut where they'll be, they can stabilize like a lower leg injury or something. Yeah, they have all kinds of stuff there. Having it with you, that's obviously the best best yeah. solution. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, the last bit here is um, an injured hiker transported from Hermit Lake Shelter. So this was 5 p.m. on Monday. A call was received from the AMC regarding a hiker who was injured after falling on the Tuckerman Ravine Trail. 29-year-old, again, from Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is the star of the week here. Pennsylvania um, she, in the news. Yeah, she was taking a short day hike. I don't know what's short about, well, Hermit Lake short, but um, she suffered an injury and was able to make her way down to Hermit Lake. So she was past Hermit Lake. That's not a short hike. Um, right. But she injured it, so... Um, they initiated a call for help. Conservation officers took an ATV up the Sherburn Ski Trail to Hermit Lake where they loaded um, her and her hiking partner onto ATVs, brought them down the mountain to their vehicle at Pinkham Notch Visitor Center around 7.15. So 5 o'clock, she gets there at 7.15. That's a good beginning of like a Hallmark movie stomp is you injure yourself and then the conser- the handsome conservation officer drives up. Hey, one at a time you. here, buddy. One at a time. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> sorry. I haven't even finished my other Hallmark movie. So, right. 
But I guess Hermit Lake is a good place to get injured. You can get a nice ATV ride down. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. So we learned a lot about running. We learned all about crazy animal stop. We learned about the presidential traverse. Good show. Good stuff. Yep. All right. We will see you next week. Until next time. Later. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.